Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. Back by popular demand following the first season, I'll bring you a string of interviews over the next 10 weeks with a number of seasoned traders in my network to give you a first-hand insight into how they trade the markets and how they are dealing with this ever-changing world we find ourselves in. And what a changing world it has been since we recorded the first season of this podcast series. Over the past few months, we've lived through and continue to live through history. The world has gone through a lockdown to lessen the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic. The global economy is consequently suffering an unprecedented contraction. Massive industries have ground to a halt. Companies have filed for bankruptcy and millions of people have joined the unemployment lines around the world. And yet the stock market indices have broadly seen a massive rebound off the lows from mid-March. Much of the market rally has been led by new economy stocks, tech stocks mainly. We're seeing the share prices of new age companies boom, such as Peloton, Zoom Communications, and a host of online retailers that have suddenly seen their usefulness boom in a world of social distancing. At the same time, old economy stocks have suffered massively. Shares in airlines, restaurant chains, and cruise lines have all collapsed. Central banks around the world have opened the spigots to allow for a wave of stimulus and liquidity to flood the financial markets. This has served to prop up the prices of risk assets in the financial markets, with some suggesting that these measures only serve to inflate a bubble in the stock market, all the while widening the inequality gap between the haves and the have-nots. Whether the aggressive stimulus measures of central banks will be able to avert a looming global depression remains to be seen. In the meantime, a wave of new Robinhood speculators have entered the stock market, buying up the stocks of battered down companies en masse and creating the type of euphoria that was last seen in the Bitcoin bubble in late 2017. What does this tell us about where we are in the market cycle? Is this a new bull market? Or is this the final blow-off stage of a bull market that has been running on central bank stimulus since the end of the financial crisis? In this season of Talking with Traders, I'll pose these questions and others to various traders. I'll ask how they've adapted their trading to the increased volatility and where they're seeing opportunities in this ever-changing world. I really look forward to sharing these interviews with you in the coming weeks. But first up, for the first episode of Season 2 of Talking with Traders, I've been joined by someone who takes a very different approach to the market. A man who is no stranger to controversy and who digs around in the rubbish bins of the financial world to unearth frauds and who seeks to profit by short-selling the shares of companies that the market has yet to discover are worthless. He gained prominence in 2017 when he published a report on the fraud at Steinhoff that saw that company's shares collapse by 98% and soon thereafter he made allegations that Capitech 2 was a house of cards waiting to collapse. Most recently, he's been short the shares of Wirecard, the German payment processor that has filed for bankruptcy and saw its CEO arrested just two weeks ago. I'm talking, of course, about Fraser Perring from Viceroy Research. Fraser, welcome and thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Yeah, it's obviously been a very good week, very good week for you being short of Wirecard. So um, we'll get into that in, in a little bit later. But I just want to get a little bit of background from you, first of all, before we get into the meaty stuff around Wirecard and what's been going on there lately. You've, you've got an interesting background, Fraser. You, you weren't always in the markets from the beginning of your career. If I'm not wrong, you began as a social worker. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I was as a child protection officer working up in Lincolnshire at the time, dealing with high-risk cases and a lot of court intervention. Interesting. So what drew you to, to the stock market and to get into doing what you do today? Very different field of, of work. Uh, pretty much, um, in a way, no choice. I blew the whistle on a um, child abuse um, scandal where I believed that if I was, um, if I reported it appropriately, I would be protected. Amazingly, it, it was more of a, it turned into a witch hunt against me where essentially they started making allegations about myself who had raised all the issues previously and that left me with a career in tatters and as as things moved along basically by meeting the right people at very unfortunate times for me i i didn't have much money left i'd been defending myself i was lucky to be able to get into short selling because short selling essentially is social work you have a family of directors you have um, subsidiaries which you can call children or whatever you want, but essentially it's the same modus of operandi in, in researching them. So they both go hand in hand, but bizarrely from different points. Very interesting. So interesting background that. Um, but what were your first years like when you started out trading? Were you successful from the outset or did you have to go through a <laughs> baptism of fire as so many of us in the market generally do? <laughs> Mine was ironically a very intense and the desperate wealth destruction. <laughs> so I, I set about working very hard at investing to turn some into very little. <laughs> so if, if there was if there was a pump out there, I, I suspect you could argue that I was on it. And if I wasn't on it, I was going to be on it. <laughs> and in, invariably, I was last in, last out um, on my greatest and longest period of about five to six years of wealth depreciation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to be a rite of passage for a lot of people that make this into a career, it seems. A lot of the, lot of the traders that I've interviewed have gone through difficult times early on in their career. But you've got a, a very interesting strategy and a very interesting way that you approach the market, totally different to anybody else that I've interviewed on this Talking With Traders series. You're a, a short seller. You've already mentioned that in the interview. That's your strategy. Um, you look for for companies that, and, and you must correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that your strategy really revolves around short selling stocks, but particularly identifying companies where there's fraud or there's some sort of mismanagement and where the market somewhere along the line is missing a trick and you seek to really do the deep digging and ultimately expose the problems at these businesses and then to take, to take advantage by short selling the stock and looking for the share price to go down. Yes? Yeah, that's correct. We, 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 we look at various things in terms of 
sometimes it's too good to be true. They're the only one within their field that's excelling while everyone's really struggling. And we saw that with Capitec, where uh, throughout South Africa and even during um, the COVID issues, unfortunately, there's been a lot of layoffs. Um, people, People look across the market and think what's going to be affected but you you start to see certain standout signs and that's just not over covid it's over long periods where if there's an issue generally within a certain sector you would expect it to impact everyone and not just uh, uh, without exception so you had um capitec where there were um issues with default across the informal and formally employed sectors and as such when it was coming to their repayments they weren't repaying anyone else but amazingly they were repaying Capitec and we started to question it on that basis that the loans appeared to be getting longer i.e. extending but they weren't suffering the same difficulties that every every other bank within South Africa was suffering. Mm. But now, to that extent, I mean, if we just take a step back then, um, and and first of all, talk about the, the Capitec, as you mentioned, but go back to Steinhoff. End of 2017, December it was, um, your report came out on Steinhoff, and it was it came after a few strange things had been in the press around Steinhoff a couple of months before that as well. Um, and then eventually it really got hot when the auditors failed to sign off the financial statements. And then things really started to unravel aggressively for Steinhoff. And obviously the share price collapsed spectacularly. And your, your report was very much credited with spotting that before anybody else had managed to do so. And you've, you clearly profited hugely off of that short sale. Um, and got it very, very right, obviously. Now, the Capitec report that you came out with it then, it was very soon after that, in early 2018. Um, if I'm not wrong, I think it was less than two months later that your Capitec report came out. Some would accuse you of of almost market manipulation with that, saying, well, coming hot off the back, hot on the back of, of the Steinhoff debacle, the market was obviously sensitive. Viceroy and Fraser pairing at that point in time before Steinhoff was very much an unknown entity in South Africa, but all of a sudden you had risen to this prominence. And, um, and therefore, when you published the report on Capitec in early 2018, the market took that quite seriously, seriously enough to, to see a 35% drop in the share price of Capitec. However, none of that in that report has ever yet been found to be true. Um, the company vehemently defended the allegations. The banking regulator in South Africa vehemently de defended the allegations. Um, you were referred to, I think, as a financial terrorist by certain members of the South African government, if I'm not wrong. What do you say to those, therefore, that, that accuse you of market manipulation? Well, uh, it, no one's been able to come up with an explanation of how these loans extended. Market manipulation is based, in my view, is, is where you present clinically wrong facts. Now, we, we evidenced and we presented our data and we explained all our loan analysis very well. And this was tested by third parties to make sure that we weren't just 
uh, grasping at straws, so to speak. And then all of a sudden, from our publication over the, the months and the years after that, all of a sudden you're getting validation from certain journalists going, oh, we're starting to see exactly what you said in terms of um, we've noticed pockets of serious unemployment, but there's one bank not affected. Uh, credit availability. You've seen it more recently with some of the insolvency issues coming forward. But there, there wasn't any announcement that they were asserting, even during COVID, they were asserting that they were they weren't that detrimentally impacted. All of a sudden, a director sells a huge great tranche of shares, and then all of a sudden they put out a an update or shall we say profit <laughs> revision or expectation. They changed their guidance, and everyone knew that they were being impacted. So they only admit it when they at the last moment. And this is typical. We've seen it in Wirecard. We've seen it in Steinhoff. And unfortunately for us, we're only vilified when it all collapses and everyone goes, damn, they were right. <laughs> That's right. Now, Capitec, just since we're on the topic of that, is it is an interesting one because, as you said, there's been some interesting developments there lately. You referred to the directors selling. They weren't really selling. They were, they were, it was an option structure that put collars in place to hedge themselves against any downside in the share price. So the directors have put massive protection in place somewhere below 900 rand a share. Um, and it runs into more than a billion rand worth of protection. So certainly taking some fairly hefty, uh, sized positions there on the on on the options side, um, and at the same time we've got PSG looking to unbundle Capitec out of out of the holding company, and also I read recently somewhere that that um, PSG the group itself had actually sold about a billion rands worth of Capitec shares quietly on the side. So it certainly does seem as if there's some movement happening there, and you're obviously very much on top of what's going on there and watching it closely. Are you still of the same view as previously that that you know Capitec is is again a house of cards waiting to fall down? Without a doubt, you're 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 seeing it in terms of people. We've been contacted by people that are in complete desperation. Uh, we have a number of issues, and they might be explainable in terms of why are people taking payment holidays when, in essence. Um, according to our understanding, insurance was compulsory on some of the loans. So why wouldn't you claim on a loan, on your insurance for a loan, um, if, if, if you were in dire straits, uh, rather than have a, a payment holiday? So that raises the question, and it might, it might be very sincere, but it raises the question about the level of understanding of the borrower. Because are they fully aware of this insurance? Are they aware that if, they, if they're retrenched, they can claim rather than go on these payment holidays? From our understanding of some of the people that have reached out, it, they aren't aware at all. And they've got insurance. So surely there's a moral obligation to refer people for insurance where it's available rather than, shall we say, increase the risk on the insurance so it becomes significantly more expensive in the following years. Hmm. Now, with all of your short sales, the, the, the really big famous ones, so the Steinhoff and our Wirecard recently, I mean, there's always been some sort of a catalyst that's that's ultimately 
broken the damn wall, if you like. Um, both yeah. with Steinhoff and with um, Wirecard, it seems it's where uh, the auditors have failed to or refused to sign off the financial statements. I mean, what do you think a, cat, a catalyst would be for cat, for Capitec if there's if there's something that should burst the well, damn wall, as it were? We're seeing it. It's it's the only bank. Um, the only lender that uses um, depositors' monies to lend out, and it's a high-risk scenario. And arguments are that they earn enough to be able to cover those uh, defaults or impairments, depending on which structure you're using. So um, we've got this where the tide is going out. The, the, the financial tide in South Africa is really going out, and sadly it's going to impact a lot of people. And there's going to be a depletion of cash because anyone that's got savings and relied on those savings is going to have to draw down. Not everyone, but the majority. So you've got a depletion of cash and you've got a reduction in the number of payments coming in to service the debt. So with the tides going out, let's see what's left behind after because it's not going to be pretty. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, that famous saying, that, and I think it was Warren Buffett who said it, you only see who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out, and that tide certainly is going out at a rapid rate at, at the moment. Yeah. Now, let's get into the really interesting one, and you've had a particularly good two weeks in the market with Wirecard. Um, now, just to for the listeners to this podcast who may not be as up to speed of the news there, Wirecard is a German uh, payments processing business. It came to market on the on the DAX in 2016, uh, came to market at around about 20 euros a share. It did very well, quickly gained five-fold in the two years after it listed, traded at north of 100 euros a share. And uh, since 2018, when the share price peaked, it's slowly but surely been dribbling a bit lower. Uh, last week, the news, a couple of bits of news came out. First of all, Marcus Braun, the, the CEO, was arrested, and the company, um, the, the auditors refused to sign. The auditors were Ernst and Young this time. The auditors have refused to sign off the financial statements. So it looks very, very similar to a Steinhoff type of situation and there's a great irony in that the the CEOs of both of those businesses share the same name, Marcus. Interesting. <laughs> um, but you, uh, Fraser, were quite vocal about this before this all before this all burst into the headlines. You've been bearish on Wirecard for some time. You've been doing a lot of digging there. And once again, much like with Steinhoff, it seems like you've you've spotted something that the rest of the market clearly missed. And the share price is now down from 65 euros just two weeks ago. It's trading below. It's been suspended now, but it just was, was suspended below two euros. So for all intensive purposes, it's just about lost all of its value. So as a short seller, you can't hope to do better than that, really. Um, you've made almost the maximum that you can make as a short seller when the stock does that. Tell us a little bit about why and what it was that alerted you to, to Wirecard in the first place. Well, we've got similar dynamics. The growth was always consistently extreme above pretty much any of their competitors. Um, they had previously, whenever any criticism had come over them, it was almost they'd been over the top rather than just get on and run a good business. 
And then when we started researching, there was two of us that did the research. Um, we, we started to find inconsistencies in Asia in terms of an encouragement to operate a fraudulent pay, payments model. We, we noticed that they, the, one of the compliance officers that we found, they even denied having no knowledge of this person. And the reason they did that was he had a third-rate IT degree. He had no understanding of compliance whatsoever, but was their Asian compliance officer. We had a bucket load of companies where there was no reason for the structure, but it was for fraudulent payments or to obscure the payment so that it would be approved quicker by the card issuers, Visa and MasterCard. Mm. The entire model was set up where if you looked at the accounts, and remember, I've got no accounting degree. You know, my qualifications are all self-taught, and you could look at the accounts, but you couldn't add up any reasoning for why the, the company couldn't account for its cash. Where was the growth? And everything they bought seemed really overpriced or it was associated with money launderers. And I'm not talking allegations of money launderers. I'm talking convicted money launderers on two occasions. Even their former, one of their former directors was convicted for money laundering to do with credit card fraud and the company still denied it involved them. It, it, the, the level of allegations was so horrific that we were just gobsmacked that the company was even, no one else had spotted it. And you see that in a lot of frauds and questionable companies where they're, they're excelling above any, anyone else in the sector. And then you get to a point where you publish a report and guess what? You get attacked. And the, the attacks weren't just the we deny all the allegations, we're starting to see a theme where if you publish a report, it's baseless, fake news, and it's all lies. Now, really? So why not ex break out the loan books in Capitec? Why not break out the cash in, in, in Wirecard? Why not break out the transactions so that you can actually see fact from fiction? And then, surely investors, if it's all real, have a great belief. Like with Capitec, they've appointed Deloitte, I believe, as the second auditor. It's taken them how many years to get a second auditor? Wirecard's audit costs were one of the lowest that we've ever seen. And what do we see with Capitec? Audit costs of how much? I can't remember offhand, but when we did a comparison, it was almost like one was audit light, i.e. the cost, we don't want too much, lads. And you've got the others where you had Nedbank whose costs were through the roof. And you'll say it's different beast, Fraser. They have different product offerings. Even on a pro rata basis, it didn't stack up. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. And it didn't stack up with Wirecard in terms of we knew that they were overpaying for companies that when we investigated 
it came back and they were it was utter crap you were buying you they, they bought gi retail where we could only evidence at one stage 300 visitors per day i think it was to a website that was allegedly the leader in its field but they paid 340 million and the best part is we proved that there was an issue we we felt it was round tripping we evidenced round tripping and amazingly we only find out three and a half years later via kpmg where they wirecard admitted quote unquote they did not know who they wired 340 million euros to they couldn't find a billion they weren't sure where 160 billion of transactions data was stored then they couldn't find it then they refused to give it and you've got the exact same thing if you were if you flip side to Capitec, break out the loans let's see them let's see all it give all the the loan data to deloitte so that they can work through it we're, we're still computing loan data to this day we don't actually give up and that you could argue fraser that's because you want to be right no we know we're right it's just when it's going to be proved and you see the same with Wirecard. We had, and I'm just giving you a small example. On Wirecard, I only have a few thousand followers under my own name. But I would be trolled by 1,300 Twitter accounts. I had fake journalists approaching me. I had my house broken into, my cars illegally trapped, me held against my will. We, we had illegal hacking and phishing attempts. Only six weeks ago, I had my house broken into and photos put on Twitter and it was all reference Wirecard. Strangely, I had a very similar experience with IntelliDex and Capitec, who called it an era of fake news. Are we calling Wirecard fake news now? Hmm. Uh, that leads me to my next question then. <laughs> Doing what you do is is extremely unusual work, but... Clearly, you've made some enemies along the way, um, as you've alluded to, with you know, being traced and followed and broken, houses broken into and so on. Um, I would imagine down in Stellenbosch, you don't have too many friends down in that part of the world right now either. Um, <laughs> no one sent me a Christmas card. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just I find it fascinating what you do because it's such a different way to approach the market. And, and yet... Yeah, you know, the auditors look like they're clearly at fault here, which is and the auditing profession has has really been dragged through the mud in the last couple of years with all of these sort of scandals that have not been picked up by auditors when they should have been. Um, and then, of course, we've also got other analysts in the financial world working at you know, enormous big research houses and banking organizations and what have you who also don't seem to pick up these types of, of things, which you seem to go digging around and, and manage to find. Why do you think it is that, that you know, the others just miss what to you seems to come relatively easily? I, 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 not all analysts are bad guys. Um, take a look at Neil Campling at Mirabeau. Zero price target on Wirecard. You can't be much more outside the pack than that. Right. And you, you get, and he's, he's conducted amazing research that people have dismissed, ignored, and it's cost a million. Same as, same as with our research. But you get analysts, and we get some in South Africa that go, oh, we haven't got time, and the company says this. So they take the company line. They don't actually go, hang on a minute. 
this has been highlighted as a potential issue. Let's assume that they're entirely wrong. So let's go and check their facts. So you go and check their facts. Oh my Lord, wow, it does actually look, I should question that. And they don't actually stop and think they take a company line or a belief because they're friends. And we know with Steinhoff, some of the analysts and some of the deals were done over brandy. Mm. And it's almost like a, a, a chum's effect. I'm not city groomed. I'm not the atypical analyst that went to whatever university, worked at Goldman for two and a half years, broke out and became a senior analyst at a bespoke research. I do bloody good research. I got the highest grade in the UK for the degree for research. Yeah? I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not your idiot. I can find research. My writing and analytical ability definitely always improving. Not as great as others, but I get there. And people just dismiss it. You've got an, you've got an analyst who is now questioning the Viceroy report for a Capitec, but it's taken him two years. Mm. <laughs> that's shocking yeah that's right I mean that report's been out for a long long time now if we take a step forward then I mean obviously this has been a particularly good month for your for your firm and for your clients um, because you were positioned on the short side in Wirecard and and you've done pretty much as well as anybody could hope to in a short sale there with the share price going just about to zero but the question I want to ask you is what is your approach to risk um, because what you do is obviously very different and and when one is a short seller the realistically the best you can do is make a hundred percent the share price yeah. goes to naught and you can make a hundred percent on your short whereas when you are a long you, you trade on the long side obviously you can make multiples of that so what is your approach to risk are you yeah do you diversify your portfolio between some longs and shorts or do you only have shorts in the in, in the portfolio the majority short and our risk profile is, I would describe it, is sensible. We do hedge out some to protect our downside, um, but generally it's insanity. Hang on, wait there. <laughs> Best for my investor not to listen. <laughs> yeah, no, the, um, we, 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 we take an objective view that, um, in terms of risk, generally we believe in our thesis, and yes, we get it wrong, and uh, but on the whole, we get it more right than wrong. We've been doing this now. I've been doing short seven years, and the rule is pretty much if you get to sort of your fifth year, you're going to survive the course because you've got your 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 management in place that does that. For the trading side, we separate out the two. So the, 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 the chap that deals with the trading, depending on our positioning, it was uh, he may take some hedge. So we might lose 3% of the entire position that we're taking. Just capping out if for any reason some idiot goes and buys something or they put out a fake buyout rumor. We suffered that with Wirecard. We suffered it with MyMedX. We suffered it with Caesarstone. But the risk protocols meant that we were protected 
And as such, we, we were able to continue to make profit after the drama had disappeared of these takeover or fake takeovers. Mm. So yeah, we ma- management side, I leave that to trade desk because for me, I, I'm about research. But yeah, you, ha- you, ha- you have to acknowledge when you're wrong and you, you have to walk away sometimes because you might be right, but you, will you stay liquid enough, long enough to be proven right? Yes. Yes. Now, something I've asked all of the traders on this podcast series is about their best trade and their worst trade. So since we're talking about this, I want to deal first of all with your what is your worst trade, because you've mentioned that you're doing what you do. Sometimes you get it wrong and sometimes share prices can spike quite aggressively when you get a short squeeze that occurs. Um, and you're obviously naturally a short sellers. What is your worst trade that's ever that's you, that you've ever done in your fund or for clients? It's got to be AMD. That's Advanced Micro Devices. Um, Listed US. Yes. We honestly believe we'd nailed it. And how wrong were we for the market interpretation of what we believed was nailed? It was, for us, it was one of our biggest learning points. We'd contacted all the relevant experts, we'd done everything, we believed everything, we'd back-tested it, we had it nailed, and oh boy, were we wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now, now when, when you say that, I mean, what, are you allowed to talk about the quantum? What did it do to your funds under management at the time? Oh, yeah, 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 really. Um, I, I, unusually, I don't talk about it, but I think it cost... Um, if I can call it the screw-up, cost 14.45 million. Yeah, dollars. Yeah. And that's massive. Yeah. Yeah, because I I, I come from literally nothing. My dad was a farmer. And he wasn't one of the poor farmers that jokes he's always poor. He was actually a poor farmer because he was crap at financial management. But um, I understand the value of every dollar, but Jesus, did that hurt. And it wasn't so much we didn't make good money that year, but it just hurt because we were so wrong. So we had to acknowledge it. And your note, we went back into it. Um, Ages later, it tripled on us, I think. But luckily, we'd, we'd had the wisdom to get out when it hit what we believe was our maximum tolerance. And we, even after the price had dropped, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Right. The price dropped somewhere in the region of 70%. We were still on the overall trade combined, still negative 5.1 million. So that's so 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 you know when I ask about your approach to risk and you say it's insanity that that tells me exactly it is insanity right it's almost like there's there's not really a stop loss <laughs> there's definitely one um, <laughs> it's a higher threshold on Athenex I mean, I, I'm going to give you another one we 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 we're still working on Athenex and the we published and on the day that we published i think over the pre- next seven days we the stock went up 50 percent 
but we knew we were right on Athenex. And I won't give you the number because it scares me of what weight. We started off with an initial short position of X, and it was by the time we'd actually doubled down and the price had gone up, we were 3X that. And we covered our, 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 our final short round about six or seven bucks. Right. And we, we made good money on it. We made but good money and it was more of a luck. We know the thesis is right. We know it's playing out because now they're, they're refinancing at higher, higher cost. It's gone from 3 4% to 11%. So we're getting into junk funding. Right. And so we, we, we know we're going to be borne out and we, we've been entering the short again. But amazingly... We, we, we aren't placing the same amount of risk on just because of the volatility. Some of these can go really, really against you in a short space of time and it's maintaining that liquidity. Mm. So yeah, we, we, we believe in our thesis. We, we also have a stop loss, which is a lot higher than others, but we will also add to it on the way up as well. Right. Now, I look at things that have happened in the short, some spectacular short squeezes over the years. So now, one of the most recent ones that stands out for me was, was Tesla earlier this year, where the stock rallied from $250. It got up to $900 within uh, a, a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. Now, I mean, that, that cleaned out some, some short sellers in the, and some big names in the U.S., uh, on on their sh their shorts in Tesla. I mean that was one of the most spectacular short squeezes I've ever seen. Another one that sticks out in my mind, but from a decade back, was Volkswagen, when oh, that yeah. share I mean for briefly Volkswagen became the most valuable company in the world on a short squeeze. How do you mit mitigate against a thing like that happening? I mean, if you've got a hectic short, a very large short position in your fund, and something like that were to happen, do you not worry that at some point it blows your fund up? Um, no, because it, it, depending on where, which stock, we take more of a hedge to pre prevent more than X in loss. Okay. Currently, currently, we're building a short position in a European company that we're going to publish on. And right. the, this company is specifically, the, the profits don't exist, the cash doesn't exist. And it may as well be Wirecard's sister. And um, for us, it's a fairly stable stock. So it's moving between the realms of give or take, uh, up or down 15%. So we're slow to build. We do, what, 7% VWAP over days, weeks, and months. Because we, you know, we're in no rush. Why should you be in a rush if, you, if you're convinced about your thesis? And secondly, it gives you normally a fairly good price. Tesla, I wouldn't touch. Tesla is a Friday night. You've had one too many vodkas and you believe it's going to go down, so you bet small bucks. Mm. I have not got a clue. If you ask me where Tesla is going to be next week, I haven't got a clue. Yeah. Um, but on Wirecard, for example, the losses that we took on Wirecard were mitigated by when, when it started to unwind. So we're, you're X short, it drops, you double up. Drops again, you double up. Drops again, you double up. So you can walk out the door with your options, 
and your short position seven to eleven x. Right. And that's that's why a card for us is complete gravy train. It's you you you've had validation, you've had vindication, you've been pursued even by the prosecutors who now have complete egg on their face, and you you your bottom line looks the best it's ever done in your life. Right. Okay, so now we've spoken about uh, about uh, bad trades and AMD and a few other risky things. What about your best trade? What is your best trade? Oh, geez, it's got to be Steinhoff. Steinhoff, okay. I, I have never printed cash so quick over so in my life. I expect I never will again. And um, why a card, I would imagine, must come in a close second? Uh, well, that's a damn good point. Give me a sec. <laughs> Two seconds. Okay, yeah, my best trade is Wirecard. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> my second best is Steinhoff. Uh, yeah, Wirecard's winning just by a little bit. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, let's, let's rephrase that. My best ever trade is Wirecard. All right. Well done. Well, yeah, like I said, it's been a very good two weeks for your firm. Oh, Jesus. Oh. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. I might start drinking. <laughs> well, it is a Friday afternoon. I guess you owe yourself one. Now, before we get towards the end of this uh, podcast interview, Fraser, I've, I'm really enjoying this, but we're going to have to wrap it up at some point soon. You made the, the, the statement earlier, we both did, that you only see who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. Now, obviously with COVID-19 and the massive global economic slowdown, the, the tide has gone out like we've never seen in our lives before, economically speaking. Yeah, Surely sure. there must be many, many, many companies that are now you know, going to be exposed to have been swimming naked in this type of an economic environment. Are you, are, are you working through the night, trawling through opportunities, looking for the next Wirecard, the next Steinhoff, uh, to, try and fo to try and find the next one that's going to drop? I, I'll put my money where my mouth is, because I am. I think I've found the next Wirecard. We've been working on it for now four and a half months. Um, overall, it's been over seven months since we started but we dropped it for a while because we had another project. And it's only, it's, it's the, the baby sister of Wirecard. It's only a five, six billion market cap, um, low short interest. And when you go and buy the local accounts of all their subsidiaries, I'm just going to read you out just a snippet. So we have 230 million missing from one subsidiary, 65 missing from another, a director undisclosed enrichment program of 55 to 75 million per annum over the last eight years and customers that don't pay them. Okay. So I won't ask you what it is because obviously that would be unethical. I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah, so I'll watch your Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would. It's, it's not far off. But um, in terms of we're also building up a it's unusual for us to, to build up sort of a portfolio shorts because normally we try and stick to between four and eight, a couple of longs if they're decent. Mm. And 
we've actually highlighted we're approaching 60 61 and we've labeled our shall we say our portfolio for this as convid as in con fake as in covid a play on the covid and we're starting to see so we had sorrento we we're up roughly 40 50% on sorrento um which is blatantly abusing the alleged ability to cure corona covid and they they haven't even tested it on animals and so we've built up this portfolio purely because if you look at it as soon as soon as we get back to the new normal and we might have a second wave i don't know i'm not an expert on it um the, the the reality is that these companies are going to be left high and dry okay and are you seeing i mean with this type of success on wirecard now as example following much of your other successes are you seeing a lot of new investors flocking towards you wanting to invest money with you um the the finance we have available we're closed to we do, we, we aren't marketing okay all right, we, so. we, we're very, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. Everything I've told you is because of the people that are behind me and with me now. It's not because I need to market and I, I won't market. Mm. It, it, we have some of the most understanding uh, people behind us that even when the crap hits the fan, they're like, yep, we know where you are and we back you. That's all you need. Well, Fraser, I think... I'm I'm going to draw it to a conclusion there. It's been really fascinating talking to you. I knew it would be. It's a very timeless interview to be doing this right after the Wirecard scandal is broken. So I'm very fortunate to have got you on the line this afternoon. Thanks again for your time. And I look forward to catching up with you again. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.